This is Marcel, and you're now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. Our podcast is evolving, actually. I feel like I feel like we used to say in the beginning, what did we say this podcast was about in the beginning? Um, a research platform that's um, prescriptive, not pre- sorry, not prescriptive <laughs> or conclusive. <laughs> wow, that's a mouthful. Um, research, we said it was a research platform. I think it's still that, but I think we're trying to be a bit more open to how the show evolves and yeah flow with how our interests change and how yeah how life changes so yeah i guess we're still a research platform for now but another kind of milestone that we have going on is we actually have a wonderful guest in the room but it's also our first male guest jonathan gonzalez not to essentialize his identity as being the first male guest it's important to note but it's i feel like it's important to know for our listeners right that we're kind of just opening up what our show consists of and what it means to us so yeah anything yes. more to say on that um i think just that we have long focused on issues pertaining to or the like intellectual creative output of women and we're still we are still focusing on that in our in our own way without being exclusive to the to like the um profiles of people who we would have on the show so we're very excited to have jonathan gonzalez here today with us so please yeah please say a few words and introduce yourself hello folks i'm happy to be here so happy you're here Mm -hmm. um my voice sounds so nice and amplified and so (laughs) balanced i want this microphone uh (laughs) my name is jonathan gonzalez yay i'm i'm born and raised here in new york city born and raised in queens to be exact flushing to start one one three five four (laughs) And yeah, I work now as an artist making performance work and I work as an educator, which means sometimes working with folks in kind of public schools, working people who are in higher ed um, around different ideas around performance and art making maybe, but also uh, community engagement, farming practices, urban planning. Um, And I work as a volunteer farmer for different sites in New York City, working mostly with youth, trying to teach them how to work with land um, and also how to think about allocating land in terms of uh, policy. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like every time I talk to you again, there's some other way that you're evolving or exploring something new mm-hmm. or adding to your practice. I feel like, how did we actually meet? We met through Allie, right? We Obviously. definitely met through Allie. What was the, how did you, I mean, how did you guys come into, like, was that like a, a dance space project thing or a performance? It was before, well, it was for dance space project. I remember there was a dance space project, Food for Thought, which is like their, I want to say biannual event where somebody is chosen to curate a group of artists and Allie was chosen to be the curator for that event. And she had, by way of the magic that is Allie, somehow come through the network to find me. And she was like, I want to know who you are. And I was like, okay, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but you could come to the studio and find out what that is. And I remember she came to the studio. (laughs) She came to the studio. And it's probably like, it has to be like four or five years now. And I was just like sweating up a storm, like anxious, dancing in circles, trying to find out what it is I wanted to offer. 
thinking that this was going to be a very professional meeting. <laughs> Allie came in and she sat down and she was like, what's up? And it was, and compared to every other experience prior, I was like immediately disarmed, which I knew was a good sign. And then also she kind of just watched and watched and watched me offer what I thought I was doing. And she was like, yeah, it'd be nice if you took a break. And that was it. Like, you know, like normally there's like these like uh, expansive, like too much that's told as feedback too early on. And she was kind of just like, what would happen if you took a break? Wow. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> wow, I just loved you. Uh, Allie was on one of our shows. Like yeah, in case anyone needs a refresher, Allie is Marcel's twin sister. Yeah, she's just in the ether of 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 everything in my life. You know, Allie was yeah on our podcast a couple, I guess, a year ago or so. I mean, because I know you in that context as like a mm-hmm. performer, as a move movement maker, and I guess I we'd love to start this conversation by hearing a bit more about what has inspired you to pursue i guess the the performance dimension of your career and like why is it something that you that you do want to mm-hmm, do mm-hmm. yeah i um i started off i started off not in performance and not really knowing performance i was i started off as a vocalist a singer just singing at home basically and like singing a lot of luther vandross with my mom and i went to laguardia high school here in the city and that was kind of my first experience thinking about what arts training meant and so like going day to day in a public school setting where it was like working rigorously on like what music might mean not ever reading music not knowing what that meant and learning that very fast because we were forced to and then being amongst so many different new york city kids who were thinking about art as like a day-to-day and possibly a profession yeah, what was it school? I just have a lot of a bunch of stereotypes in my mind. So <laughs> what was it like to go there? There were lots of fangs and piercing your belly button in geometry class and like very oh queer God. and possible and which allowed for me coming into queerness to be very possible. You know, like mm. not saying that it's ever not easy or that it's ever is easy, but between the ages of 14 and 18, I feel like are such a ruthless time. Totally. Like socially. And it was ruthless still because it was like you're in competition in some way because you're dealing with art practice at a young age and everybody's kind of trying to deal with expressing themselves at that age. And that's just so much hormone. But Oh my God, <laughs> I can imagine. But there was no normal, which it felt like to the most part, you know? Or there was a nice sense of decentering normal, which was just like fashion and like, I don't know, different ways of engagement and being okay failing your academic classes if you really were here just to like play the saxophone all day in the hallway and you were like I, I actually don't care at all about anything else here and there was space for all those permutations which felt really nice um and that led to i guess i remember i had a girlfriend shout out shout out to girlfriend in junior year I think my <laughs> last girlfriend <ever>. Girl, <laughs> girlfriend the last, one, <laughs> the last one and she was a dancer and uh, she was in the dance department and she uh, had and this very classic story with a lot of dancers who I think identify as men. But she was like, you should try it out. I took a ballet class. I paid for myself. I had always wanted to take a class. And I was always like dancing kind of like salsa, bachate, pericoripia, like all those kind of styles at home. Because I was I'm being Dominican and part Cuban. So that's like really in the culture. A lot of my family are musicians. And I've like my, you know, that's just really the life. So... I never had really done that kind of training. So I started doing that. And then dance felt like the way in somehow. But dance, if for those who might know dance is like a murky bastard child that really has no identity. So it's like you might know dance as all those Western classical forms, but it really becomes whatever you want it to be when you start thinking about the body 
as being the material you're working with, you know? So I went to school. I did all these formal educations and things around dance. And then I started finding that what was missing in a lot of the curriculum was talking about uh, like a cultural body, a sociopolitical body, being a being like a black scholarship kid, I think, in higher ed and being interested in studying and enjoying writing and performance studies and feeling there was a lack of thinking critically about how to put or place your work on a stage. That was like a missing conversation in the dance curriculum. It was really more about virtuosity and getting getting the shit right. So yeah, that was like, I didn't know that that was hitting me, but I noticed I was feeling like a sense of displacement in my imagination. And post that, I feel like performance became a way. So many different artists kind of ushered me in as being a performer in their work. And then sooner or later, it felt right to like know that as being what I was working through performance on a stage and also performance in my education teaching practice, how to open up the way we think of the stage being everywhere, you know, like this is the stage now, us together. And also when we walk on the sidewalk. So I think that's why I chose performance, you know. It's it's really like puzzling to me that I also studied art, not performance, but that when you're in school, you learn this like virtuosity training. And then the second that you become like an adult in the creative professional sphere, you're supposed to basically forget that and like do something that no one's ever done. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's like the worst preparation <laughs> in a lot of ways. But um, how would you describe the kind of core themes of your practice now? Like, uh-huh. I mean, I'm sure that it's evolved a lot and like we were, we're, we're going to ask you some questions about your earlier work later, but like, where are you at now? Right now? Uh, I think, like I said, farming has been a really interesting practice. I think, uh, uh, I think I'm thinking about like what it means to live in New York city and to like inherit living in New York city and to think about like holistic well-being. Um, and so I've I've been doing a lot of and I've never I have no experience in the past with like gardening or even thinking about land like that's really not my life nor and my family is like <laughs> very city like my mother lives by the train and she loves listening to the train be a block away from her like, <laughs> with her Tim's on yeah like my mom is very much she's like me and my man we came from the concrete and we're roses and we grew out of it like she loves that and I love her for that but um the story is basically, yeah, I think I'm thinking about uh, like what it means to do choreography for more years of my life because I've had like 14 times I wanted to quit. And I'm like choreographies of taking care of land and taking care of your body really feel interesting to me. Like what are those, what are the day-to-day kind of practices that our bodies have to navigate in order to feel like we're in a holistic space with ourselves? And then what are all the barriers of living inside, like uh, living inside, I think, a body that, you know, Bodies of color, queer bodies, bodies that live somehow in a disproportionate reality that is both structurally organized um, and also imaginatively somehow um, mm, taken outside of a center. Um, So I think farming has been really nice to like, it's nice in that way that it's like you get to use your hands and soil and they say that's very therapeutic to like put your actual body in contact with the earth. And then also to think about how these are kind of inherited choreographies of kind of both possibility and potential energy to feed yourself, but then also a bondage and, you know, histories of kind of uh, uh, being in duress, you know. Um, And I guess, and yeah, you let me know when anything doesn't make sense, because I rant about this stuff all the time. I'm loving, where do you practice? Like, what's your farming? Where where are you farming? Where does this go down? Yeah, I think a few different places I'll definitely shout out. I've a Morris Campus Farms that's in the South Bronx that's run by an artist named Mayfield Brooks, who's a farmer I volunteer at sometimes, and that's a really dope space. 
that's been in kind of visioning for a long time, but has been actualized in the last two years. And it is now kind of anchored by the New York Botanical Gardens as the schoolyard of Morris Campus High School. So those students are the stewards of that space. Um, and then Queens County Farm that's out like in Bayside, which is kind of one of the largest farms in the Northeast Corridor. Um, and they take regular volunteers during the week, uh, during the harvest seasons. Um, the Root, which is up in Albany, I've gone up there. And um, that was really dope. I think that was very early on. And that's a kind of collection of people who have funded that space and taken artists to try to have downtime. I learned how to do some woodworking there and just build my own farming tools, which was really nice to like know what that means. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah. Okay. It's very hands-on if you want it to be. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how is this shaping... How is the the farm, the land work practice? Is that shaping like the way your performance practices now, or how would you, where, how would you describe sort of the where you're at with that work now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think the. I think it's like I took an ecofeminist class the other day, and it was like it was real. <laughs> yeah, it the was, other day, yeah, <laughs> just, just casually. It was weird as hell. But where, where was the class? Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, and it was. Tell us more. I'll tell you so much, and I think, and it'll get back to your question. Yeah, but it was like I had all there was like all these readings. I, I like to read a lot, and. Um, and so I was reading all these readings and like like Catherine McKittrick, for instance, and Adam Bledsoe, some people just to put in the uh, Willie Wright, like Project Row Houses, people who are thinking about situations of um, bringing back ownership over land and thinking about policy engagement and blackness. Um, and then there were all these things that I didn't know that were coming up, which were references that were classical. And I was like, who the hell are these people? And so I took this eco-feminism class to try to understand this like, I guess like any sector, who are these folks? And it was, you know, galvanized by like a lot of white feminist realities. And they weren't thinking at all about primarily number one, I think black and brown women and how they're deeply connected to the labor of uh, both peoples, but also land, you know, historically and how that, that kind of reciprocal um, extracting of those women also is connected to the extracting of the earth. And so in that way, it's like the object sub- subject relationship between those two things is always deeply tethered. It's like mm. the earth is a subject as much as the black and brown female body. And also they're both objects in commodification historically. And so I also, you know, there's the parallel between the fact that like black men and trans people were also working the land. So and working the land feels like working the stage for me. And I'm I'm learning those parallels that I've always really dis dislike being on stage somehow and always do it because it's somehow been something wow. available to me. And I feel like the intensity of the gaze, and which I think a lot of black artists who deal with abstraction and think about performance are probably talking about all the time. And I inherited that conversation, but they're like, it feels like a trap and the trap is real. And that's what high art is. And that's what contemporary art is. It captures upon our identities in any way that it can kind of create a lucrative narrative that's legible. And, you know, yeah. And illegibility is hard. So the land is illegible somehow. Like you can't, you can't, you can't get a formula for how to make your shit grow. Like you have to be there with it and listen. And simultaneously, you really can't make blackness or brownness easy to read. Like, you know, it is those commodified things that are fashion and culture and somehow media and live separate from bodies. But there's also something murky and always changing, which I think a lot of black study reveals to us that it's like, you know, some call it jazz, some call it groove, but 
it's the constant improvisation of survival. Okay, so I guess I, I, I mean, I'm curious, like within the context of everything you just talked about, like who do you make your work for then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this answer, this answer begins always first with the people that like I know deeply and intimately that I care for, like my family. Like I want to make my work for my family. And I want to make that work for like my extended family and my chosen family, you know, um, the biological and otherwise. And then the people who feel like are the nearest to me, which are, you know, people of color and queer people who are living through the world and understand that these works are worldings in which we survive, you know. And so being able to play with that. But then it also is for everybody. Like, I, I know that, you know, uh, like, the op- opportunity to do performance, like you were saying that first question, why to do this at all, is like, this becomes a moment for a social negotiation where you, as an audience member, show up and you sit down and you experience this thing for a period of time. And whether you dislike it or like it or all the other in-betweens because it's not a binary the interpretation of a performance you then walk away and I've incepted you in some way with this work, me as in the collective that builds the work because I always make it with other people. But the work somehow pushes up against your social day-to-day, you know? And so for everybody, it has some position. I was like, the other day we opened up the work at MoMA PS1, Lucifer Landing Part 1 just opened. And I was like, it was a three-day exhibition kind of thing. And I was wandering around like being decoy and (laughs) secret shopper. Exactly. I was like, little do they know. Somebody came out of the dome. She had just finished the experience of the installation. And I was like, what did you think? Oh my God. (laughs) And she was like, she was like, and you had to wait one at a time to enter. And the line got really long one day. It was like two hours. And she was like, it's not worth the wait. And I was (sighs) like, I was like, well, the work is working then. I was like, <laughs> the work is working then. Because I was like... Feeling something. Feeling something. Willing to say it. Well, can you actually tell us a bit more about what Lucifer Landing 2 is about? Because I feel yeah. like we we have these other questions, but I feel like it'd be good to ask about the the work itself. Because it... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Lucifer Landing is a work that's happening in two parts. Uh, the second part's coming up soon, May 2nd to the 4th at Abrams Arts Center. Um, and the last, and the last one just happened, uh, Lucifer Landing part one at MoMA PS1, the 19th through the 21st of this month. And, um, it actually started off really actually through a conversation with me and Ali, I think that like Ali and I were looking through Chadas and, uh, the kind of arts action collective that, uh, spawned in the seventies in Lower East Side and, um, the groupings that they were and the multiple people who joined in that kind of community point to create, um, sustainable housing models at a time when those inequities existed at a high rate. Um, Like, you know, this time that's really iconic with Bronx's burning in New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, And so through, like, thinking through these folks, like, I didn't even know these folks, but these, like, white kind of neo-futurist architects, they call them, like, Buckminster Fuller, who were thinking about how, like, an architecture, like a geodesic dome, can be both cost-effective, quickly built, in places that are somehow dealing with disparity, And then also in its architecture, like in the design, somehow is intimate, like in comparison to like the starkness of New York City building. And um, Chadas made this thing. They made this kind of project, which oriented for like two years down by East Broadway. And then I was looking also at June Jordan, who um, is a poet and also an artist. And she created this really beautiful set of um, blueprints under this idea she called architectural when she was like an architecture reads and talks to you. Um, and living in Harlem, she was saying that the public housing, um, 
design was so tall that it blocked out the sunlight and she was recognizing that you know that there was connections which we can you know things tell us truthfully now that there are connections between addiction and like kind of the urban planning design and you know legacies of trauma that are inherited through that so how we live is what we live and so she imagined these kind of tall silos these kind of spiralic silos based on all these like geometry philosophies about how they affect us intimately um in which Harlem would be rebuilt and there would be light and there'd be green space and things would be taller and thinner instead of wider and encompassing. Um, and so their work inspired uh, me and a collaborative of people um, uh, to work first on a dome. Myself, Pamela Yu and Rena Anakwa, the three of us um, architected and built a dome, which is kind of a like a poetic riff on both of their blueprints. Um, kind of sustainable design made out of wood. And it also talks, it, it's spiralic, deals with geometries, and is thinking about what it means to aspire for possibility and living and dying well in this, like, you know, this geopolitical moment that we find ourselves, that climate change somehow feels like hot on the topic and hot on the thread. Um, and it's trying to make sure that people remember that those things are always first racialized, that, like, where that ecofeminism class failed was that they were like, we're all here for the earth. And I was like, yeah, we're all here for the earth, but the earth is doing different havoc, you know, in parts of East Asia in comparison to parts of, I don't know, like the Northeast Corridor of Massachusetts. So, you know, and there's reasons that those things persist and, you know, hurricanes hit where they do. And it's, we know that, you know, Haiti will tell us that. So it's, it's realities that we have to see. Um, Lucifer Landing then creates that dome, and then also in Lucifer Landing 2, um, there's a, a really nice collection of musicians, Johan Diedrich, uh, Gang, uh, Jeremy Toussaint-Baptiste, Rina Nakwa again, the students from uh, Carnegie uh, Music's program Studio 57, a student musician from the group Face the Music. Um, they are a student orchestra in the group. Um, is that everybody? Yeah, that's everybody. And we created a kind of a uh, five movement opera in which going through each uh, five different planets in a constellation, Mars, Mercury, Venus, Saturn, and Neptune are as the movements finishing uh, Neptune. Uh, we ask for the end of the human. We ask for like the, like, oh, like the end of that, like real grand idea that there's such thing as humanity and humanness and being humane you know, because we know those things are racialized and we're not all existing the same. Like when someone's like, you know, this is a humane space, humane for who, you know? Yeah. So we ex we're trying to uh, exhaust an idea. We take the epicness and we exhaust it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're connecting things so rooted to land and space and cartography. It's just, I just was listening to a really awesome uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talk. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's... <sighs> Yeah. Can I read you guys this amazing quote? Please. From the top. The, this is how it ended. And I'm just like, I, I like dropped my phone and sent it to like 10 people. Okay. Where is it? Not Rico Nasty. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, but it's a talk because th there's, um, she just had that like really amazing New York, um, Times. New York yeah. Times profile. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> this is Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, geographer, professor at CUNY Grad Center, and mm -hmm. also write, writes about sort of the prison industrial, prison industrial complex yeah. and how it's connected to climate change and mm -hmm. just amazing. Okay. So, sir, the fiction of race projects a peculiar animation of the human body. 
and people take to the streets in opposition to its real and deadly effects. Mm -hmm. In the end, as the relations of racial capitalism, which is all of capitalism, take it out of people's hides, the contradiction of skin becomes clearer. Our largest organ, vulnerable to all ambient toxins, skin, at the end, is all we have to hold us together, no matter how much it might seem to keep us apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I just had to type that out. I screenshotted it too. I'm like, amazing. Anyway, so your work is reminding me just about how she's bringing, grounding like the very space and how our lives are mapped out very uh-huh. materially to uh-huh. like so many other issues. So, wow. Yeah. Um, it's because it, you know it's that thing, and then you can shut me up. But it's that thing that <laughs> no. it's like, it's like. And this is probably like Sadia Hartman or like Tina Camp. Like these people really, really eloquently will say this. I feel like in their texts, when I think of like Lose Your Mother, for instance, mm-hmm. or or Tina Camp's work on images, like it's like when we talk about like Akragon or we talk about the beginning of a kind of transatlantic slavery, there were bodies that were deemed capital. And like that persists like we can never separate capital from bodies because that was such an early linkage it was still accruing like people are still making money off slavery yeah ex- all the time you yeah. know and also material off of our own ideas yeah. you know so oh yeah, yeah yeah and and like the i mean the many histories of slavery even before the transatlantic slave exactly. trade like since the beginning of history and this mm-hmm. yeah we i was i was just having a conversation with someone about that the other day how, like they were they were just asking like is this i mean talking about like what is what is like humane or like what is human nature like is this part of human nature mm-hmm. this thing that has like been so constant in history which that humans are trash basically yeah, sure. yeah. it's a constant it's a yeah. species constant it's a species constant yeah, yeah. all for your <laughs> so let's stop being <laughs> let's stop, stop. Being humans. we're going to yeah um well um let's see we okay so On the topic of your performance, we also wanted to ask you, you know, you create your own performances, but you also dance or perform in some way in other people's. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of what kinds of works are you drawn to to be part of? And what's the relationship between those and the ones that you make? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, performing performing inside people's work is a lot of emotional labor, just like making work, but it really switches up when you are the canvas, for instance, versus being the person who's being involved in canvas making. But um, I think uh, the people that I've performed with in the past are so wide and varied in it. When I think about it, like I've, you know, sometimes I've done plays because I really feel like I have no access to articulation and I need to know language in that way. And then sometimes I've done some really like kooky performance art, like, abstraction where i'm like in a bubble for an hour or something you know or, <laughs> or you know I, I i you know i worked with some really lovely people like you know like lehia lewis i think uh who who's a dominican uh, american artist but living in europe who makes some really interesting uh, work about multiple ideas around affect but also is dealing like really interestingly with the idea of the theater and cynthia oliver a black woman who's been making work for a long time about like Caribbeanity as an idea and how that ties into gender discourse in America. Um, I don't know. It's so wide. Philip Howes, who's making really minimal, minimal performance works in public spaces as interventions. You know, we performed in train stations and on the street as minor acts that would just disrupt your day in a really, in a really like <laughs> subtle way. Like Is you, this in New York? Yeah. Like, you know, on the street, you'll see us or in the train station if we were doing it, you know. And you would just see an oddity in the in the in the normal day to day landscape, you know. Um, and I I think a lot of those people are thinking really critically about 
why even make work, you know, and they have mm-hmm. a deep gut around trying to push themselves with each study. And they're thinking very collaboratively, you know. Um, I don't really have much of an interest in working with people who are thinking of themselves as high authors or like the brilliant artist because that's whack. And also, we, <laughs> <laughs> simply put, <laughs> it's like it's just whack, and we know that's not true. It's like nothing gets done well alone. And, yeah. And if you wanted to be alone, then you know you can just be a man. But it's a lie. alone. <laughs> I feel like performance has a performance art has such a cool history of at least attempting whether successfully or not to like defy the commodification of art anyway so it's like it seems like a great place even in that sense for the kind of work that mm-hmm. you're trying to do yeah um but we could you tell us a little about your earliest work like mm-hmm. the first it might be i feel like if, if someone ever asked me that like what's the first thing you ever wrote i'd be like sorry way too embarrassing <laughs> possibly discuss that okay well now i need to hear yeah. it, but. um but we wanted to hear that i saw this question and i was like damn Okay. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's cool. I'm trying to think. I made I made a crazy ass piece when I was like 16 at a place called Dance Theater Workshop, and it was just I was like always trying to be too deep. It was like so fake deep, but it was okay. Like I meant I meant well. And <laughs> you meant are you sure you're not Taurus? I was like I was like so much Aries energy. I was like I was like let's go for it. Let's feel it. Like and it was I had met with a group of um. At the time, it was Congolese refugees, and they were my age, and we had had a coffee, and they were just kind of, in, they were in a group of a group of friends, I remember, and they were really interested in trying to collaborate to make this work, and we tried to, like, reimagine this kind of poetic idea of what it means to make the travel to America, or what it means to travel back in time. And it was, like, a very wild West African like a Zonto dance. Hey. It was like it was like <laughs> so it was it. like a real dance too. People were sweating and wearing like tattered tank tops. It was it was dope. Um is it recorded anywhere? It is, but I'm not gonna show it. But it's, <laughs> it, 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 no, you can see it if you want to. You can well, see it. I would at your gladly retrospective, show it. it will probably yeah, be there. It'll probably Just be know there. That. Now you have time to like emotionally prepare. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna let it yeah. happen. I yeah. love it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So and that was the that was the first pe- that, was that was the first the, where you're like I'm yeah, making work now. I'm making work now. I guess I'm making work. Yeah, sixteen. 16 I was 16, gonna say. Though. So I was kind of like, who knows what's gonna happen? I also want Taco Bell right now, but it was like <laughs> a lot of things could happen. I was definitely working hard at making that thing. Wow. Yeah. You you meant well. I you meant you well. definitely did. Yeah, I meant well. I meant well, and we have fun, and that was important. I think for sure, I was thinking about like how to work with people and how to enjoy it. Yeah part of the process i mean like i can only think uh, i mean knowing the both of you and how how you have isabel jonathan how you guys have kind of navigated this like crazy contemporary art world in new york city um (laughs) and i've only heard like peripherally just horror stories and like how how ridiculously challenging it must be like you were already mentioning like the elitist conceptualizations of like authorship and then i could only imagine like the race politics or segregation i mean i a theory you i want to hear from you a bit about how you're navigating i guess the business of performance and if yeah and how that yeah how you're navigating and how it shapes your experience as a creator maker yeah performer 
there really is no like somebody need, needs to offer the field notes early on like so i you That's can walk you. in yeah exactly <laughs> right well now, yeah i'm yeah. happy for this document and i'm going to share channel. what i can and <laughs> the slack channel exists yeah top rank hashtag top rank oh slack my God. no more slack uh, no more slack first rule no more slack um <laughs> but i i think what i've learned and being a performer really helped a lot because that's one thing where being a performer helps so much because you get to watch an artist wrestle with the business of things and the institutional ask if the institution is where they're doing their work. Um, but scarcity is a real thing. And, and, you know, and we know this in all our fields, like, you know, people of color trying to work in a field, scarcity exists and it produces really toxic forms of competition and uh, uh, contemporary art is so much wrapped into persona as it also is wrapped into the material that you bring into this world. So really is like slandering, you know, all those aspects that can somehow ruin a reputation are involved in being a part of the world. So, you know, in all those ways, tenacity somehow is important, but I feel like that's whack too. It's like tenacity should also be about like a, a, a striving for collective reality and like not for separation and individualism. So, I'm learning that, first of all, that it's like, check how the institution is talking about you in all publicity materials and, you know, like really read through that contract as many times as you can, you know, in terms of really owning all of the intellectual property around your work, because the baseline for being an artist of color is that you don't own those things and that those things are going to be somehow circulated the program season after you as a kind of model to get people in the door, you know, and and it'll be framed in whatever way they see fit, which is typically under a very kind of colonial, colonial hashtag decolonial agenda that they're like <laughs> doing the work. And you're like, you know, and actually none of us want to be positioned as representatives in that greater project, especially not through an institution, which we know wouldn't hire us with medical and benefits if they had the opportunity. So it's like, let's take control of that first. And then for me, at least learning how to demand a working space that isn't about that kind of professionalism, which feels wrapped up in high art sometimes, that it's like the working space needs to be almost like an office job. And I'm like, you know, that's not what I do. I'm trying to make art work and part of the social life of being together and collaborating is the art too. Like how are we actually gonna like make some lateral ass ways that we take care of each other and chill the fuck out in terms of trying to own space and own capital around each other and own each other's identities. Um, and I've managed in this time to find a really amazing collection of people who take care of me and when I'm feeling exhausted and I feel like I need an outside eye or I need somebody to like take care of administration and I can provide some kind of bartering system or actual compensation. And the more ways you can say, I cannot do this, the better, which I think contemporary art really is not interested in. There's like some idea that we all have read the same thing and we're all up to date on all the new factoids. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, who is actually doing something? Because how do you have all this time, you know, to be reading everything that's available to you? So it's really sexy. I find when I am like, I don't know, you know, and I find it really important to a creative process to be in a community of people who are interested in learning in each other. And I'm trying to find a way to partner with institutions that demand that. Um, but it's not always easy. And scamming is a big part of the work too, you know? So it's <laughs> yeah. like, get your money in the ways that feel like you're able to also garner a kind of rupture in the institution. Walk in the door, make demands, and leave with more demands and change the kind of framework, you know, like be the kind of catalyst to, to even a minor change, you know? Because the hope is for you to just do a suitcase performance where you just walk in and you just kind of tap dance on the stage and walk your ass out. But 
it's at this point it's like we know that's the trap so we don't have to take that bait Mm. yeah and i feel like what you're saying about you know having to have read all the right things and like be privy to an exact point in this like complex conversation it's like produces obviously an exclusivity and like limits the audience and Mm -hmm. in i mean especially in the art world which is now so dominated by the market in the past like 30 years i suppose you you know that fictitious value that has to be created somehow so obviously exclusivity is so important to that like making something which have like scarcity exclusivity all these things so it's like i always find that there's a really weird relationship between the scarcity of representation race etc and the um ex and the exclusivity of like elite knowledge like Mm -hmm. the the intersection of those two things is like bound it is i mean it's honestly for lack of a better word just like disturbing Uh (laughs) so Uh disturbing so I mean, you you commented once we were um, like like real fangirls reading your interviews prior to this. You made this comment saying that um, I'm going to quote you to you right now. <laughs> the isolation between disciplines when it comes to performance mostly has to do with, with capitalism. So that's something else like on this kind of contemporary art world um, topic that we're, that, that we're trying to dig into a little like even, you know, Industry divides are obviously to some extent fictitious also, but like, yeah, like how are you working with like being a professional performer and like, what is this discipline for you as a way to like, you know, make money and live? I, I, um, I have a dear friend, Nick Kay, who is also an artist and we talk about this all the time because, uh, and I think it was, you know, today I'm just coming from the theater too, getting ready for the premiere. So Nick is also preparing for a premiere at Abrams. And there we're just hanging out in the theater during downtime. And we're like playing with materials and building things. And we're like, look, we made a sculpture today. You know, like, and we just go back to, you know, getting on stage and stretching or something. But like that reminds me so much of my childhood. Like, you know, like that kind of flexibility, you know, drawing for hours and move and all media is available to us, like in our imagination. And we know that, like we all know that, but we all have to standardize to be able to get a check. So it it's, those are the parameters that I see those things work well. And luckily performance like dance, but performance art is that stronger subset somehow that is bastardized from any real media, but it's always also occlu- including the body, you know? And I like that that's a part of it. But, you know, I trained in music, for instance, you know, and like I started off and I lived in New York City as a young person and grew up here where there was so many different kinds of influences. And I never felt tied down to like I just I never felt like I could excel, first of all, in a way that felt really real, like I was going to be Luther Vandross. So it wasn't like I was aiming my way like in that track, like going to Baptist Church every Sunday to try to hit that riff. Like I was like, I'm so into that. And I'm also trying to find out like how I can do that watercolor stroke better. So there was always better, t- like there was a kind of encapsulating reality, which feels so much tied up with queerness and feeling in peripheral spaces in New York City and finding ways to hang out at night and like being inspired by so many different kind of subcultures that crafted my personhood. And like that punk, like realities of that sound and like living in New York City are always about illegibility. And those are the reasons I even came into creativity. I know that. So like, even when I do feel like I really just want to be acting like whatever a choreographer might mean, I know that that's also temporal. Like, I will soon want to do something very different. And it feels just kind of slimy when, like, the enclosure becomes really real and you're called something and named something because we know names are a form of entrapment and violence, you know. 
And and we feel it the most as people who are just offering our creativity as a form of visibility, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess within that framework of, like, visibility and illegibility, Isabel and I have just kind of, I guess, tracking not only in, or just in our own discussions, not in, only in contemporary art, but just in, like, marketing, like, mass media, the mm-hmm. sort of inflection or like mass commodification of like racial identity and the idea of like representation as like hashtag representation matters like we had an awesome um guest on the show a few um weeks ago uh professor sarah bernie wivers wiser who talks about this in relationship to like sort of commodity feminism mm-hmm. um and i guess i wanted to see if you felt this kind of shift happening in the pr- contemporary like, performance world and especially, I guess, the burden of representation that, you know, people of color have in media making more broadly, this, like, imperative because of scarcity to have to, like, represent something or someone and the burden and the box that that can create. So I was wondering if and how you navigate that in the spheres of work that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Ali is a good person to ask about this in some ways in terms of asking me because... I remember a few years ago feeling really, I don't know, really like uh, a bit suffocated by what um, those kind of identitarian factors entailed upon my work and how I was being spoken to by people who are running institutions and how they were putting, you know, you do a lot of like festival formats when you're an artist, especially as a young artist, like sharing bills with other artists who somehow the overseers have decided you're in conversation together. And that can be really telling quickly when it happens on such a frequency, you know. Um, and I'm most, normally with the same collection of kind of, you know, black artists, queer artists who are doing work. And and it becomes real reductive quickly, even though y'all become a really strong community. Um, and I felt the urge that feels like so romantic, but like to just leave the country, which is what I did. You know, like I left and that's how I met a, a constellation of artists who were working outside of America who... Sh- and a market that existed outside of America, um, which taught me another matrix that was doing that work, you know? It's not like it was anything was more utopian, but it was a different matrix. And I saw those traps and I got and I got paid under those kind of auspices. And then I came back to this place and I recognized that it was like, okay, to be, to be surprised. To be surprised is is the naivety on my part. Like, you know, to be surprised, like we said about capital, that somehow capital is deeply entangled with the identitarian project that once existed in the early 90s and reemerges now under like a kind of like technocratic reality where everything is somehow accessible and we understand each of each other somehow and or can attempt to one way. Like that is the contemporary that I'm dealing with and that material I can't deny and then in that way also, I feel like we get the possibility to know that all of those things are always in flux. Like blackness for me feels like a vast opening and not a closing. So mm. it's like, how does that become a project for me right now might change in the future? Because that's again what blackness is, but like like become a capacity to think expansively and nuance and non-singularly, you know, like Victor, who is our mutual friend, Victor Peterson, like writes a lot about that idea about like the black knot, like what is it to live in negation and to live in affirmation of a kind of identitarian reality or a kind of, um, you can say pre-identitarian, which is the true authentic root of a black reality or post-identitarian, but like 
to know that space exists for yourself, which is kind of like being five years old and knowing that you can just kind of walk until you find out you can't just walk where you want to go. Like to live in that kind of mercurial space of reality and invite that. That is where I situate myself in terms of thinking about identity in a real in this moment. But I know that I like you know, these, <laughs> it's like we know this, you know, and we take care of each other. Me and the people who I know who are artists, we talk about this all the time because it's exhausting, you know. I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a huge part of it too, like what's what can be really liberating, which you just spoke to so eloquently, is like understanding just even the very recent history of these things and like understanding that identity politics already happened Mm -hmm. in a similar like market trend that Mm -hmm. it is now and that you know no change is permanent like these things comes and um come and go and that you have to like craft whatever identity is for you outside of this like technocratic identity politics moment that we're having now like won't last in our lifetimes you know like other things will come so it's like whatever you whatever is your rock has to be like bigger than that and different than that and like vaster than that Mm -hmm. so yeah Mm -hmm. and also white supremacy is identity politics Hell yeah. I do some annoyance like let's not let's not even like it's it's crazy how these things like identity becomes this like um term with like a slimy tinge to it it's almost like I think especially in the art world and also in academia it's too it's like there's too much of it's it, you know bent on the whole like fiction of like objectivity it's like there's too much of you in it and yeah. I mean I I'm, oh, I, yeah. I can imagine yeah. that there's probably certain camps in both spheres where like we're beyond that conversation already but i still feel like when people say identity politics it's like thinking about identity as this even the way i phrase the question as a sort of confining set a box or set of parameters rather than the way you're talking about it like actually like an opening like an invitation like a um a process yeah of especially because like a white man can never make identity politics art in the art world yeah it just wouldn't happen or like the few times or they it do has, and it's it not talked really about badly yeah or it's like is minimalist painting identity politics for yeah. f- for white men from northern europe like yeah yeah totally it I becomes mean, like it becomes immediately fashionable because they attempted you know hmm. definitely i mean yeah. i was just reading something this week there's a issue from 2010 of of art form about style edited Mm -hmm. by michelle quo shout out um Mm -hmm. and there's this um indian art historian uh, partha mitter wrote this short but like super concise basically like it's really really short it's like 500 words just small takedown of all of art history as just like completely overlooking the like centralized obviously like completely centralized northern european whiteness which is just like the neutral in art history and that still like despite that conversation being had in many other realms of like social criticism somehow like hasn't really still happened in art like it just has flown under the radar in art in so many ways like just exactly as you're saying like this thing being invisibly central like even talking about identity politics so i he he's 81 years old but i really want to like get him involved in yeah. something Great. i'm Call like i need up. i'm like i need to hear yeah. more about this from you let's get a call um, but <laughs> it, it just reminded me a lot of what we're saying i mean yeah. it's it's awesome that i don't know i feel like the way you just described it is so beautiful seriously you know i mean you're doing so much and i wanted to, we want to really know like what is on the horizon for you you know what's next what's, what's next or you could next. be also be present and say like i don't want to share but well 
I'm ha- I'm happily here. So that's me being present. It's so cute to be here. Oh, I'm enjoying so this lovely time. To have this you. is a beautiful way to reflect and be here. I'm enjoying this. The nice entanglement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's next? Lucifer Landing Two, as said, was next. You know, May second to the fourth. So come on out to Abrams Art Center um, this summertime. I'm going to really be, I just moved into a new place. I'm learning how to land and making roots in New York City in a long way. So like uh, for the first time living in a place that I feel like I can sit for a long time. Mm. And that also entails like going up to Soul Fire Farm, which is located um, upstate New York, which is a good place to know about Leah Penniman and the work that those farmers are doing and doing like a farmer's immersion program and thinking about what it means to maybe collaborate on uh, getting some space in New York City uh, to make that happen. Um, yeah. And then besides that, you know, when you're in the midst of making something, it's kind of like, what happens after that? It's like, I'm very much gestating. Like, Mm. I feel like there is a birth about to happen. And after that, life will somehow just tell me what to do. And I'm excited by that. Oh my gosh. I need to start thinking more like that. <laughs> yeah, like, I love birthing metaphors for anything. recording. We will transcribe trans- it. Rev. Oh my um, gosh. This was such a pleasure agreed. and privilege. Seriously, thank you so much, Jonathan yeah, Gonzalez. Thank you. That was just incredible. Yeah, you're listening to the Top Rank Podcast. This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. And we'll be back next month with something else. And as usual, you can contact us if you'd like at marcellatoprankmagazine.com or isabellatoprankmagazine.com. And we're also Questions, on ins- comments, Instagram. Oh, yeah, at Top Rank Magazine on Instagram and possibly Twitter. <laughs> I think Sorry. we do have Twitter, but just, you know, whatever mediums you want to get in touch with us, there are plenty. So... Yeah, stay in touch. And And where can we find you, Jonathan? Yeah, you can find me by looking up my name, Jonathan Gonzalez. That'll take you to some Instagrams like uh, (laughs) Jonathan Gonzalez, etc. And then also uh, multiple other streams. But follow that. Amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And shout out to Hassan, our wonderful... To Red Bull and Hassan. Thank you, Hassan. Send me in my outer bag Send me to your heart